Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it's hard to believe we've been having weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals has links to purchase the source material behind our adapted film discussions. Your purchases there help support the show at no extra cost. For the entirety of Season 11, we featured films directed by women. The only exceptions were some of our member bonus episodes. We talked about the lure for our horror debuts series, which is a very loose adaptation of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Definitely miles from the Disney versions. <laughs> for our 10-year anniversary series, we covered We Need to Talk About Kevin, taken from the Lionel Shriver novel. Man, that was brilliant. And horrifying. Yeah. The Journalist series included Merrily We Go to Hell and The Weight of Water, adapted from Anita Shreve's bestseller. We filled some gaps in previous series with member bonus episodes on adaptations like Malcolm X, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, Cactus Flower, Wild at Heart, Life Force, and The Blues Brothers. Our John Hurd series looked at a trio of adaptations, Chilly Scenes of Winter from the novel by Ann Beatty, Awakenings based on Oliver Sacks' nonfiction book, and Rambling Rose adapted from the Calder Willingham novel. Two films in our coming-of-age debut series were adapted from books, The Virgin Suicides from Jeffrey Eugenides and The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Phoebe Gluckner's graphic novel. We had Queen of Cotway for our sports series based on Tim Crothers' nonfiction book. And Clueless kicked off our 90s comedy series, loosely adapted from Jane Austen's Emma. It totally took place in the 90s, though. <laughs> Find all of these books and more adaptations on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The Last Supper is over. We probably saved him from an alien abduction. A storm is brewing, my friends. Someone has to stop it. Every Sunday for about a year now, we've been inviting a guest over for dinner and discussion. Zach, this is Mark. Oh, hey, Mark, this is Zach. We're a bunch of damn liberals. What are you, a Nazi? Or is that too far to the left? Hitler had the right idea. Excuse me? Let this pass. We can go on with the rest of our lives. This is terrible! What if you kill somebody whose death makes the world a better place? The Last Supper, Andy. We're talking about The Last Supper. Stacey, titles 1995. Um, uh, political manifesto movie. <laughs> Uh, that is uh, divisive. This is a divisive movie in terms of opinions on the quality of the film. That's what I think. Dark comedy uh, can be a challenge when it's uh, when it's dark and uh, done like this. It's definitely something that that pokes at people. So certainly, certainly will be an interesting one to discuss. I think so too. Um, you you and I both saw it when it came out early on, right? When did you first see it? Do you remember? You showed it to me. Um, I I'm guessing that you had it on video and that we watched it, like maybe even in your dorm room. Well, it wouldn't have been in the dorm room because the movie came out in '95, and I don't think we would have had it on cassette before we graduated. So I think I made you watch mm. it in California when we were living together. I think that's probably where it was. Yeah. Yes. So it would have been it would have been in the late '90s, and um. Yes, that's I, it took me a little bit to piece that together because I have a visceral memory of watching it with you in my dorm room in that's, I Hall. know. I, but yeah. I think I put way too many movie viewings. Man, we've seen there. a lot of movies in our dorm rooms together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so that's that is our ring. It hasn't I, I watched it a lot in that period. That probably tells you something about me. And I have not watched it since uh, probably the early 2000s. So been a long time 20 years yeah i don't i think i saw it that one time with you and uh liked it quite a bit i think you know now that i think about it i think it really was right around then because that was the same summer that there's something about mary came out which we definitely saw in the theaters Cam uh, cameron diaz was a big big thing and you probably said oh you think that um you know everything about cameron diaz check this movie out <laughs> yeah that's probably it that's probably was the a, story. I, it was a Cameron Diaz throwdown. What a weird flex. That is a legitimately <laughs> weird flex. Why would I ever say something like that? I, I'm just putting words <laughs> in your mouth. But I'm sure it wasn't quite that. But <laughs> no, it's I mean, it's a really interesting. I mean, considering her career, like I, I think my impression of, of Cameron Diaz was that she kind of started with the mask and then was just like, a Hollywood thing. And I don't think I ever pictured her as an indie actress. And I think that's why, probably why we were talking about it and why we ended up watching this, because it was definitely something different for her. It definitely, it's, it's certainly not the mask. It's not the mask. It's, it's not, not the there's mask. something about Mary. It's also, you made a note and I made a note, the same note. And it is, so we're doing this as part of our nineties comedy series. There are, there are parts that for me that are laugh out loud funny, but it's largely 
you know, not a, a straight up comedy in in the aspiration of something like Billy Madison or Clueless, like we're talking about. We talked about last weekend, next week. I mean, it, it's a dark comedy. And I think when you have a dark comedy that's dark like this, especially something that is looking at kind of this, it, it's satirizing, um, you know, political points of view and one sidedness and all of this, like that sort of stuff. There also is, um, a, you know, a, just a dramatic, you know, social satire in this film that is that it really isn't funny. And so it is interesting to kind of um, look at, at how that how that works and, and where is the funny and where is just kind of this this dark thread that we have in the film. So, yeah, right, right. Yeah, a lot of darkness. Definitely something we'll be talking about for sure. And with that, uh, this movie was rated R when it was released for language and for some sexuality and violence. Want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, you can. If you see an Apple or an Amazon link to the movie in the show notes, just click on it. It will take you right to their site where you can rent or buy the movie. When you do this, we get a little piece in return. Uh, check out the merch store, truestory.fm slash TNR merch. You get shirts, stickers, mugs, masks, pillows, and more this week. I don't know what it's going to be. A tomato plant? Probably a tomato plant. Maybe a tomato plant and a headstone. Uh, I don't know. Seems like a lot of opportunity. Rich with opportunity. Um, and that's what you could get over at truestory.fm slash TNR merch. You buy something from that store, we get a little sniff, you get a nice bit of merch. That's how it works. We are featuring audio reviews from you, our dear listeners. Just send us your audio file to reviews at truestory.fm once you watch the movie. We just might end up showcasing your voice on the show. You got to get them in quick. We do record about two weeks in advance. So, and, and, you know, this season is ending, but our next season's lineup's ready. So you can check that out. Start watching them. And send them in, and we'll hold them until we put the show together and edit it. So, again, just send them in to reviews at truestory.fm. And you're wondering, where do you find this list of movies that we're going to be talking about? Well, you head over to letterboxd.com. That's letterboxd.com. There's no E in case you get real, real confused. Letterboxd.com slash the next reel. That's our HQ page over at the uh, Letterboxd Fantastic Movie Social Network. And uh, that has the list of all of our upcoming movies that we're going to be talking about this season, this coming season. Um, we are wrapping up the season uh, with our 90s comedy series. We'll have a few hiatus episodes, some things coming up during July, but we will start recording this next season in August. So uh, they will release in August. So you have a little time, but not too much. Get, and uh, so this that's why Letterbox is so important. Now, once you get there, you're going to discover that Letterbox is amazing and you're going to want to support them and you're going to want to support us by upgrading to a pro or patron patron account. And that is going to get you no ads and a lot of warm fuzzies. Plus, 20% off on that upgrade. Works for renewals as well. And just like those memberships over at Letterboxd, we have our own memberships you can sign up for and, and become a member. It's right on our site. It's built right in. It's super, super easy. You go to truestory.fm slash TNR membership, and you can sign up. Members get early access to every single episode we release. You also get bonus episodes. It's crazy how many bonus episodes you get. We have a member month. It's too many, month. really. We're, to be honest, it's too many member bonuses. We've we've overdone it. We've overdone it. Is it too it. many? 
Members get a monthly member bonus episode. It fills in a gap from a previous series. Members get to vote on what we're going to be talking about in those episodes. We do a monthly flick chart re-ranking episode, and we do a retake episode at the end of each series where we talk through what we learned from that series as a whole. Again, you can go to truestory.fm slash TNR membership. That's TNR for the next reel. And you can learn about our tiers. The most it'll cost you is $5 per month or $55 per year. Okay, Andy, the last supper. It's time for some supper. It's supper time. It's supper time. That's it. That's what this movie is. It's the last supper. It's a uh, biblically named. Yeah. Do you feel like there's uh, what do you what do you think the connection is there? The last supper. I'm not a religious man myself. But you know what the last supper is. You've heard of this thing called the last <laughs> supper, right? <laughs> was wasn't it based on a Dan Brown book? I'm sure it was. <laughs> It's when I Jesus do, sat do. with the 12 apostles yeah. and they yeah. all eat. It's their last supper with Jesus because then, uh, you know, Jesus gets gets arrested. It's, it's, it's that whole betrayal thing. And it's interesting, I mean, because I don't think this film is really taking any biblical um, references from the said last supper. Wait, wasn't Jesus drinking the white wine? Like in the painting. I think that's what it was. <laughs> was, he was did, they, did he have the blue bottle in front of him? He has the blue bottle in front of him. I think that was the joke. <laughs> so, but it, it, it is interesting that they used the, the concept of the Last Supper in, in terms of like what was going on here. I mean, we do have, you know, the, the uh, painting essentially from the Sistine Chapel that, that our character Mark has painted on their own ceiling here. So, I mean, I guess there is a sense of like, they're playing God, stuff like that. So there's, there's a little bit of an element of this as they, as, as we kind of jump into this story. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the, the entire thing is they, they have imbued upon themselves the, uh, the role of adjudicator of sin and the, the last supper, the table that they're having where they, they have their last suppers is the cleansing table. And it's where justice is served and it's where they're, they're purging the sins of the future. Uh, right. That is their, uh, that, that is, is they made it their role insufferably so yeah it's an interesting group we've got a you know it's there are five grad students living together um in this is all takes place in iowa and it's uh, cameron diaz ron eldard annabeth gish uh jonathan penner and courtney b vance as the five um grad students they live here in this place that they're all renting together and they have a little tomato garden in the backyard and one evening, Ron Eldard, as he's driving home, this, uh, he plays Pete, his car breaks down, and he ends up getting a ride from a friendly stranger named Zach, played by Bill Paxton, who brings him uh, back. Now, they have established that they have these periodic um, dinners, like a weekly dinner or something, with other people that each of them brings to have debates and kind of have these conversations at dinner with. Zach, since he's there and since their guest was unable to attend, they invite him to join them as a way to say thanks for bringing Pete home and all this sort of stuff. Turns out, as they're having this conversation, he's very racist. He doesn't believe in the Holocaust. 
He seems to be defending Adolf Hitler. It's kind of strange as far as like, you know, everything going on here. Plus with, you know, Courtney B. Vance as one of our characters and Penner, uh, also one of the characters. Um, he's Jewish and Courtney B. Vance, of course, African-American. Uh, there is incredible tension at this table. And then Zach actually stands up and holds a knife to the neck of Mark. Things kind of go crazy from there and they end up killing Zach. And um, that really becomes like the, the um, inciting incident here when these five students realize, holy crap, we ac- we killed somebody. It was out of self-defense, but we killed this guy. What are we going to do? And that, that is the thing that, you know, kind of shifts their brains like, well, we we are making the world a better pra- place because we got rid of this guy. That's the setup. I mean, let's just talk about kind of this setup here, because it's it's not like they just decide, hey, let's start bringing people over to kill them. It all starts from this particular instance. That's just a dinner gone awry, really. I think so. And and I think reading too much into the incentive or the, the initiative of the table is, you know, before that that thing happens before that first killing of, of Zach is, you know, they, they just, they're just kind people and they're intellectuals and like them or don't, they felt at that point very real to me, right? They felt like people that I knew at university uh, through my academic career and f- having these sorts of community dinners, these community table dinners where you debate difficult subjects uh, was a normal thing. It was an absolutely normal thing. And so I think the setup was was real and rational and natural and didn't, didn't feel beyond the pale uh, for this movie. It felt at home. So the setup of killing this person who comes in ostensibly in great, you know, conflict to their ideological, shared ideological worldview and representing that confrontation, that it leads to a physical confrontation is the thing that flips the switch on our liberals, right? It, it flips the switch on the liberal palate and um, it, it causes them to go beyond, to become do-gooders in a way that is that is you know maladjusted and it is interesting that really i mean it's zach it's this this vet who's a little crazy he's the one who really sets them off right i mean he's the one who holds a knife to mark's throat and then hits pete and they there's this big fight he's the one who kind of sets them off to the point where mark really feels like his only uh option is to stab the guy but it's that whole thing, the way that Zach took over the dinner and turned it into this tense thing that turned it into something violent. If he had just been having this conversation, they likely would have said, well, you know what? This has been a a, a messed up evening. Uh, thanks for driving Pete home, but we're going to ask you to leave. And that would have been the end of this whole thing. So it's interesting that this little... Uh, you know, Zach's outburst. And it, I mean, we certainly learn more about the Zach character later as the film progresses. But at this point, it's like he causes this shift in them and they kind of realize we can get away with this. And, yeah. and it's, it's a, it's kind of a dangerous line where these characters cross. And, and in a dark comedy like this, I mean, Dark comedy is a really challenging thing to make because you're, you know, you're taking this, you're satirizing a lot of things about these people. You're not necessarily painting people in a realistic light. You're kind of, you know, twisting things a little bit to for the point. And so I think in context of this, yeah, we have this group of liberals that have these conversations, but they definitely kind of take 
turns as the film goes and 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 progresses and and these these five characters um you know start finding it easier and easier to make these calls and to play god and um it becomes interesting this whole idea of making the world a better place and we should talk about this whole time travel thing that they bring up time and time again if you could go back in time to 1909 would you kill Hitler? He's young. He hasn't done anything yet. But would you kill Hitler? And that becomes kind of their point of reference that they bring up multiple times throughout the film as a thing. Like, is it better to do that and save the world all that all that hurt or to 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 leave it and let it happen? Uh, it's presented in a number of different contexts, too. Once it's you know, they set the, the stage around the fact that it's time travel, but it's also presented in it's 1909 and you're sitting across from, you know, Adolf Hitler, you, you know, disregarding the fact that there could be time travel involved. It might just be you're sitting across from a guy that you don't know if his future is going to lead to doing something horrible. And that's important, too, because that difference is the difference in the film where they have to rationalize their killing as if they are sitting in front of every one of them is an Adolf Hitler without time travel at all. And that is that demonstrates this sort of ease with which some some say and some, you know, the, the sort of liberal mark and I, I think is demonstrated in the film is unable to rationalize kind of kind of difficult conversations like this. Uh, and this movie demonstrates these five people are not able to cope with with the things that they are confronted by. And as evidenced in this first scene, they invite this guy over. They discover that he's a trucker. They discover that he's a vet. They discover that he is, uh, you know, has strong feelings about <laughs> race, doesn't believe in the Holocaust. And they immediately begin to judge him, which is exactly what they promised they don't do at these me at these meals. Right. They are they are ill equipped to have the conversations they want to have and instead resort to violence and. Uh, that that's one of the things I think is interesting about this movie as the montage of people that they bring in for last suppers goes on. You realize every one of them is insufferable in their own way, including everyone at the table. And, like there is no one aspirational uh, vessel for the audience to really latch on to and say, oh, I'm like those people. I'm seeing this through their eyes and I like it and I'm comfortable here. Everyone in here is is rendered uh, uh sort of disquiet source of uh, perspective. And that's, I think, um, a, a key part of doing a story like this when you're when you have this dark um, look at society. And again, you're really I mean, you're crafting these characters that we can kind of connect with at the beginning. We understand who they are. Um, we understand kind of this type of conversation that they want to have at the table. But it's very it's a slippery slope like once once you kind of start having those things and somebody is so completely the opposite viewpoint of you and not going to change their mind like and i feel like this film it's very interesting like in today's like 2022 eyes to like look at a film like this and realize how difficult it is to have a conversation with somebody who is so fundamentally completely opposed to your point of view and neither of you are ever going to actually like open your mind to have that conversation and find a middle ground because because it is a very much a challenge and, and in today's uh, world it, it just feels more and more challenging to actually find that space where you can have that um, you know have that common ground and so watching these five 
so quickly and easily fall down that slippery slope. I mean, even Annabeth Gish, Gish's character, Polly, she is the one who initially is the most reticent to kind of go down this road. Courtney B. Vance is kind of the one leading the charge. Like, this is going to be great. We can, you know, clean the world of these people who are, are you know, evil. And um, she doesn't want to do it. But, you know, by the time we get to the end, she's completely flipped. And, you know, we, we do have other characters kind of coming in and out of their comfort with what they're doing. Cameron Diaz, the one who really starts making the change toward the end, as as she realizes, you know, just because they have a different point of view, this is when they're talking to the high school student who has, has issues with the fact that the schools want to promote sex education, mandatory sex education, and feels, you know, has opinions about what that what they're doing to to youth and making sex okay and all this sort of stuff but it's just a different point of view and that's where this the the whole concept really comes into you know focus here because they're they're just judging people on on being different and instantly finding them guilty and wanting to kill them and bury them in the backyard and it's like that's that slippery slope like you if you're not going to allow a difference of opinion and this is why i think that final dinner with ron perlman ends up becoming so key because he's just like all five of you you know you're you're all going to have different opinions and and that's something that we haven't they haven't really thought of up until that point and it's like it's you you realize how easy it is to kind of fall down that uh that hill and and start judging people so uh with such reckless abandon well and that's one of the things i think is smart about the structure of the film leading from the f- opening sequences to the end of the film that i think they effectively uh give you enough characters to connect to briefly so that you think you're in a comfortable space until those characters do something reprehensible and then you are uncomfortable and i find that satisfactorily jarring to me whether or not i i don't to me i think the film has some challenges in spite of the fact that i enjoyed my experience with it on this round i overall i like it uh and i think that the the way that they structure each character falling apart that thread of each character falling apart after we have this montage of them getting aroused in their own unique way over the power and authority that they're exuding the agency that they're exuding in their lives by taking the lives of others that they find reprehensible is i think a really interesting um sort of narrative curve uh in in the middle of the film and so i like that stuff a lot I don't think when we start looking at each individual character, I don't think the characters are as well developed as I remember them being. The five specifically, you're talking about the grad students. Yes, specifically the grad students, and um, you know, I, I Cameron Diaz as a psychology grad student, uh, I, I don't buy her for a hot second. Uh, I feel like I feel like she's one of the the thinnest of the ball. Ron Eldert is is a is just a is super frenetic. Um, I think Courtney B. Vance is the most interesting um, because he you can you can tell he is really performatively trying to wrestle with uh, his malintent that erupts as as a as a part of the process of starting to kill these people. When he finally um, takes a shovel to the head of the sheriff, um, that is a real transformative moment. And I think it's, uh, I think it's really, really solid. Um, so I, I don't know. How'd you feel about our, our central five? 
I had less issue than you, but I think also that's because in in a story like this, I don't think I'm necessarily looking for them to be as well fleshed out individually, because I think there's an element of a parable sort of thing here where you just have a quick image of who each of them are. You know, you don't necessarily have like these fully fleshed out characters. And I think that's fine. I think we get what we need from them over the course of the film. You know, the struggles that they have, the the draw they have to to what they're doing, like those elements, I think, work in context of what uh, Title and her writer, Dan Rosen, are, are trying to craft with the story here. So I, I just, I just, I just want to engage in that point because I think that's a, that's a really good point. There is a piece of me that sees this as sort of an inside out story that all five of our central characters represent, you know, id ego, super ego of a, of, of one identity, right? The grad students become one conflicted identity confronting all of these other identities. And that, that starts to make more sense when you talk about it as a, as a parable. It's like these five represent the one ideology that and and how fragile it is and how it starts to fracture over time so sorry but yeah man, that's but how i, I, I kind of feel and even like when you look at who they're bringing over as guests everybody is painted in such a i mean it's like star wars planets like right i mean it's just like such a one specific thing that is so wrong with each of these people i mean if anything zach our first guy may be a little more broadly painted because you know he's a veteran and we like that he's a veteran you know he's he's done good things he's you know fought in wars um and you know he's a he's a fairly simple man he's just a truck driver he's not as as much a thinker as these ones but then he's also this racist and a holocaust denier and things like that and there are other things about him as we start meeting these other people you know we have uh the first one that comes in is Charles Durning as a reverend who's very much against uh homosexuality and then you have uh, Mark Harmon as this guy who um i mean he kind of is like um uh, very much a male chauvinist saying that, you know, there, rape isn't really a thing and has this real issue with women. Then you have like a neo-Nazi and then Jason uh, Alexander plays an ant, like an anti-Earth person. Like he doesn't – he's all about, you know, yeah. we're here. We you know, It's, you know, very much that sort of mentality of like, you know, Earth is here for us to use. Um, and so everybody is so – specifically honed in on just that character type and and it's really just designed for us to look at that particular element because of of the way that this particular dark uh, comedy is crafted where we've got this group of liberals that is one mindset against each of these other types of mindsets and what that does to them and but we start kind of getting a little more uh, the the areas get a little more gray as we go, and that's where we get the the guy who I mean he's he's he seems like a neo Nazi or somebody who actually starts saying you know what you guys are right and you know maybe I should start like he actually listens to them and that's the first time that they're confronted with that but then they shift it around and <laughs> make him feel it's okay for you to think that and so he accepts it and then they kill him anyway. But, like, they're defeating their own purpose. And then, of course, you have that high school student who, again, it's they're looking at these things that it's just like, you know, it's it's just talk about, you know, sex education. 
this doesn't make a person an evil person. And so they start with these big things, but by the time we get to that point, they're not they're they're much smaller, yet they're still treating it like it's this big thing. So I like the way that the story crafts and allows you to have these big characters that lead to stuff that is much less um you know dark and something that people can just have a conversation about. I mean, it's very hard to say, hey, I'm I'm this liberal, you're this um, neo-Nazi, let's find common ground yeah, so we can right, talk together. Right. You know, it's right. it's very difficult for that, but by the time you're getting to this girl who is just like, I just don't think that schools should be teaching sex education to um, you know my fellow students, that's something you can have a conversation about. But they look at it as like, let's kill her. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, I I, I don't I, I want to make sure we say out loud as men standing in the deep, sh- dark shadow of our 50s uh, that this movie was 1995. And it seems I, it might seem if you're new to the movie, if you've never watched it, that it's ridiculous because we're having these conversations right now. Like we're struggling. I should say we're struggling to have these conversations in the media right now. This language that that was put on screen in 1995 was for its time a a progressive look using satire at the way conversations should not happen. And uh, and and I think for that, it should be in its own way celebrated. It was a, a new thing. The fact that it is less incisive, it's less scalpel than it is hammer is is part of its it, to me part of its charm. But I can understand how others m- might completely disagree that it's it's an over overweighted sort of a blowhard of a film um the one name you did not mention which actually is the first controversial figure that we're introduced to is that of norman arbuthnot played by ron perlman we see him in a clip on television before their first sunday dinner uh, their first supper and they have some a, a few pointed words at him and we see him jump back in by way of the television uh, uh several times throughout the film and he is uh was supposedly not uh, modeled after rush limbaugh and he is uh he's a you know far-right extreme positioned shock jock yeah i mean and he's he's definitely an interesting one because he ends up becoming the last supper right he's the one who they uh, i wasn't exactly sure what luke and pete were doing at the bus stop but they went to the bus stop and ended up running into uh, Ron Perlman's character who was passing through town. And since the buses are all shut down because of weather, they invite him back for dinner. And so this this is this final scene where you actually now have this big character that represents everything that they're against that they keep seeing on TV over the course of the film, finally now in their space. And it feels like they've been building up to this, and this is the big dog, and they finally have him in their place. And I love, like, I just love this dinner scene because it's the moment where they're having this conversation with him and he is the most sane of the entire bunch. Like they are pushing him and asking him all these pointed questions. And he is, he keeps coming back against the very people that he uh, seems to be speaking to and how crazy they are and all this sort of stuff. And that he's really just doing it for ratings, which in, in and of itself could be looked at as the unforgivable crime that he is just yeah, saying. Yeah, that's these the thing they never just bring up. Ratings. Like he's well, a sellout. They, First and yeah, foremost. Right. Exactly. But it plays so interestingly as they have this conversation with him, and he really seems like the sane one in this group of of people who are the they have taken everything to their own extreme that they are just looking for him to say the one thing so they can give him that wine. Yeah. 
Right. I, I, Ron Perlman was perfect to play the character. He was perfect. I thought he was absolutely perfect. And uh, I really this is one of the roles when I think of Ron Perlman that I that I remember of him uh, with his grin, that awful, awful grin he managed to conjure in the context of this character. It's just uh, now he also, you know, you say he's the rational one, like he keeps coming back to this, like, I happen to be representative of a machine that clearly you all don't understand. So let me help educate you. We have to have extremes in order to anchor the middle. And that's what we want, don't we? He says provocatively, we want to have a middle where we all can live together. But we have to have extremes on either side to be able to anchor that middle. And that is uh, a worldview that they simply weren't ready for or had over the course of the last, you know, 85 minutes with us whittled away their ability to understand that particular position. And uh, then so just when they all step out of the room before before we get to that, before they leave the room, I think we need to talk about the Hitler. Yeah, go ahead. Conversation, because that comes up again with him. They ask him, if you could go back in time to 1909, would you kill Hitler? And he's like, absolutely not. And they're like, have some wine. He's like, but he explains it. He's like, <laughs> I would have a conversation with him. I would talk to him about these things and see if I could actually change his mind. And it's that perspective that actually is the most sane. And theoretically, that's exactly what they're doing these dinners for. Right. But they've completely lost track of that. But that's what they're doing. They want to have people, they can have these interesting conversations and talk about these points and potentially maybe change some minds. But they're so far from that at this point. But that's exactly what he's saying he would do. And I found that to be so interesting because that's exactly the point of view of um, a, a sane person. Interestingly, it's also to a large extent, kind of the point of view of the type of person who ends up moving into the political circles and and ends up like making a lot of these decisions and leading as we end up kind of with the voiceover at the end. But anyway, right. Well, and and as he has said at dinner, he is committed that I'm I'm not. I already have power. Why would I need to run for president? Right. Which I thought was. Yeah, I have a, more power than the president. He says. Right. 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 Uh, why would I want to invest in that? I thought that was a, a, a interesting observation. Now, so they all can't come to an agreement on whether or not they're going to kill. And this demonstrates the fractured nature of their ideology at this point. Um, And it's Courtney B. Vance's character who is really pushing to uh, end the Hitler argument. And he actually has a gun now since he killed the sheriff and is ready to use it on anyone who gets in his way. So from the beginning, where in fact it was was this uh, Perlman clip on TV that incited the Hitler argument in the first place between them. Now, over the course of the entire film, they have undone their ability to approach that particular thought experiment at all and have dissolved. They they manage to come to terms with some peace. They come back to the table. They're not going to kill them. But in the meantime, we have Ron Perlman's Agatha Christie bit, where he is able to look around the room. I guess maybe it's uh, it's less... Agatha Christie and more usual suspects, uh, where he looks around the room and is able is, and sees all of these elements and is able to put them all together. He sees the the graves and the tomatoes and he sees the wine and he sees he sees all the elements that the newspaper and, the newspaper about yeah. the missing sheriff and uh, the right. missing people and everything and, and he he puts it all together. And just as we 
have come to to appreciate him and and the fluidity of his worldview, the flexibility of his worldview, they all come back in and he has poured them some wine. And clearly, I think I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're meant to already have uh, figured it all out. He is he's either protecting himself or he's doing exactly what they were going to do to him uh, for ideology's sake. And he kills them all by by making them drink the poison wine. So so what what do you take of that? Well, it's it's a really interesting ending because, I mean, you have this the, this guy and, and you know what we see is they they have the wine and then we cut to a painting. You know, Mark is this artist and it's a painting of. Uh, an empty table, five bodies on the ground, with um, Norman standing over them, smoking his cigar. Presumably, <laughs> either Mark painted it as a as a prescient image of his future without realizing it, or it's just you know um, a movie art that you know tells us what happened without showing it to us. But because my impression is that they are all dead. Like that's yeah, the impression I have too. is, is that he, he tells them, don't worry, I didn't pour any of the bad wine. Cause they had told him, oh, don't drink that. We think it's gone bad, but he, we, you know, we think that he has poured that for all five of them. They have their toast and drink their wine. That's what we're meant to think. I, I'm really torn on the end of the film and, and how we're meant to take it. Did they actually just end on a positive note? And he pours them good wine. They drink the wine. They they have their thing. But they've learned. I mean, we know that they. I mean, Luke Luke Cordy B Vance's character had a breakdown. Came out of it. They were able to pull him out of it. And if anything, I think that this conversation that they actually had with uh, with Norman, if they had, if he didn't kill them, and they have this moment where. They realize what they're doing and that they've taken this too far. It's going to set them back on track. Mark could have painted this painting as a way to kind of close things up, saying, you know, Norman showed us the error of our ways. Um, this is that part of us that is dead now. And now they've moved on. Norman has also moved on and now has gone into politics. Or did Norman actually kill all five of them? And it is his way to kind of. Um, you know, do exactly like you said, do what um, they were going to do to him and kind of move, you know, they're uh, representing the extremes now. And now he's moving into that extreme where he is going to run for office. Um, it's interesting the way that it's it ends because it's not incredibly clear as to what actually happens. Yeah. And I but I think either way, you end up getting some interesting ways that you can read the results. I think you can. I think the 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 way the opening credits set up the paintings, there is no necessary connection to, you know, Mark as the artist of those paintings. They're just paintings as as a part of like pre-telling the stories, like a prologue, right? And so that final painting feels to me like a continuation of that. Uh, not uh, an indication that they all survived and Mark was just drawing something that, you know, was this is what could happen. I, I feel like they're all dead. I do feel like the using the painting as a way to tell that story is uh, might be a wink and a nod too far, st- such that it, it is confusing. I, I think it could have used a stronger hand at the end. Well, but I think what it does is, I mean, yes, but then then it's very blatantly telling you what happened. And I think what title chose to do here is to not 
be blatant and not show you the five dead bodies on the ground and him standing over them, which we could have just cut to and just seen them all actually dying at the table. Instead, we have this. And I, I, I kind of enjoy the title gives us that option of, you know, maybe things didn't end up bad. I mean, who knows? I mean, geez, they're already killers. They killed the sheriff. If anything, I mean, yes, some of these other people were bad. And certainly we didn't bring up the fact that they learned that Bill Paxton's character, Zach, actually killed this this girl. The missing and girl, right. This, this is a, a whole other element that we haven't really talked about. While all this story is going on, the film starts with a missing girl uh, poster, which uh, is Elizabeth Moss as a young girl, actually, on the poster. And the sheriff, Nora Dunn, is actively trying to figure out what happened to this missing girl. And we learn over the course of the film that Zach, Bill Paxton's character, had kidnapped her, done something with her. We're not exactly sure. They find her blood in his truck when they discover it. And I don't know, I guess there's an element that if they hadn't killed him, if they had just said, oh, you know, yeah, we got a ride from him, all of this, like, could that have led to finding and catching Zach and potentially figuring out what had ha- actually happened to this missing girl. I'm not exactly sure. It's an interesting thread. And Nora Dunn, as our sheriff, is, I guess, the representative of the good in this story, trying to figure out what's going on, and ends up getting killed, hit in the face by by Luke when he discovers her kind of poking around in their backyard, trying to figure out what, what is going on here. How did you read this element of the story? The the framing device of the Jenny framing device? I guess so, yeah. I liked it. I liked it because uh I, I my hunch is what they're trying to do, what Stacy Title was trying to do, uh, you know, in in the film is introduce a shock to their intellectual media bubble, right? That uh and and so having this poster that we open with with the missing girl and teasing out the the hints through side scenes uh that this is an ongoing investigation uh with uh, uh sheriff stanley uh played by nora dunn uh, it didn't feel at any point like wasted screen to me it it felt like it was intentional and that it was going to come back around and make us challenge whether or not they did the right thing by inviting this unknown to their table they effectively and i'm saying this in heavy air quotes they effectively pre-killed hitler from doing something else worse later right by killing zach did they make good on the thought experiment and that i i I think that's what we're meant to see as a result um, it also allows us to to demonstrate introducing conflicting arguments to the table. One of the things we hear very early on in the film is them talking about these other people that they're inviting to the table. And they're other people that are from their own, you know, they may not know them personally, but they're from their own world, their own intellectual sort of academic space. Uh, at no time have they have they demonstrated heretofore that they're able to invite conflicting arguments to their table they're not ready for that and the movie demonstrates they never get ready for that they're never able to to be able to handle that that sort of confrontation um and so i think having this jenny framing device get opens the door to a number of different strategies for communicating the the intentions of the film that i think all of them in their own way work i didn't find myself disappointed or bored at any point 
No, I didn't either. I, I guess if there was, uh, you know, an, an issue I do have with the film, I mean, I, I think that it does present a lot of really interesting, interesting ideas. I like the idea of having this kind of framing device of this story as the sheriff is trying to figure out what happened to Jenny and how that ties into Zach. But I, I feel like they could have found some cleaner ways to give us the results of all of that. And that's where I'm like, uh, you know, torn, like they, they, they ended up killing Zach. Did they in fact stop Hitler as you, or this, you know, quote Hitler as, uh, as you had said, was this a good thing? I mean, he is a person who already killed a girl he could have killed again, but is there, uh, like, how interesting would the film have been if they find out that, um, that he, they had killed Zach only to find out that uh, at some point from the sheriff or somehow that Jenny had been alive still? And if they had helped, if they had been in a position to help catch him instead of already have killed him, there could have been information that the sheriff could have gotten from Zach that could have led to them finding. Uh, Jenny before she had died or something. And, and that kind of twists the thing a little bit, like they might have killed this person, but by doing so, they ended up themselves essentially killing Jenny. And like, I, I feel like they're, they're the, the storytellers were close to doing something like that. They never quite get there. And I, I guess that's why I end up feeling like it's, it, it never ends up building to something as effectively as I was hoping it would have. That's an interesting point. And I, I, I was never at any point on the fence as to whether Jenny might be still alive somewhere, right? Because they never found Jenny. They just found the yeah. evidence. And so, and so that feels like the, it, it doesn't feel like a, a com, like a confusing bit to me. It feels like a rewrite. I'm not saying, well, and that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying yeah. that it was confusing. I'm just saying, it ends up feeling it ends up falling a little flat and feeling underused as as an element of the story because by the time we get to the end they're still missing jenny posters up it's like like where what was the overall impetus to kind of have this in here because it really never takes us anywhere and so i guess i am kind of doing a rewrite saying if they had found a way to do something like that it would have given us a little more and given these five grad students something uh, heavier to actually think about about how they ended up playing a role in this thing and i think in the context of doing this dark comedy and this satire on this way of thinking how that actually you know paints them and what they realize about themselves i i feel like they needed to have a stronger drive with this side of the story i'll i'll grant you that i, I will grant you that for sure and let me just ask how much of that do you think could have been improved story as is with a stronger sheriff. I felt that Noradon was likely miscast. It felt like a, a, a rather anemic in, investigator. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't ever feel any intensity or threat as a result of her involvement as law enforcement when she comes into conflict with these people, um, and discovers them. It, it just, it felt thin. And I kept wanting a stronger hand from the, from the police. Uh, as this comes up. What do you think of Nora? I don't have issues with Nora. She felt uh, world-weary and kind of just kind of going through the motions of this where she felt like this girl was probably already dead, but she's just kind of going through the motions trying to you know do her part. If anything, I felt like it just wasn't written as strongly as it needed to be to have it as an element in here. Like, if if she's going to be our representative of 
the good you know in this film of no other good characters then we really needed to make that a bigger role and have a, a more important part uh, especially by the time we get to the final confrontation between her and Luke in the backyard, it's like it just it just kind of fizzles out, and so it it, it does end up feeling like they wanted something in there, but it just doesn't feel like they knew what they were doing with it. Like I just feel like this the film would have been stronger if they had just not had that in there. Like it's not giving us a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I also feel like part of the uh, object of the sheriff is, you know, she represents the Sisyphean task, right? The, the, or the, the task that, that is, as you say, it is the task for good. It is the ultimate good in a film with no ultimate good. And it's the thing that, you, you know, you say she's world weary. She represents, I think, in a movie with so much, you know, nod to religious tropes she represents kind of jesus right like doing this thing um even though everyone else has given up has has like shunned her efforts she's the only one who is out there pursuing leads on this particular case to find this you know this girl and to deliver her from evil and so it it just it just feels like a representation of a cause that is under underused, I guess, in that regard. So maybe I think I'm I'm ultimately agreeing with you, <laughs> but but I, I I would I do just want to lob a little bit of the let's let's have a stronger hand play this part. She she felt a little bit wandery to me. Well, I mean, she's certainly like uh, one of those faces that you see pop up in here, and you're like, oh, that's an interesting choice to play a sheriff. I mean, I always think of her as as Saturday Night Live, you know, and and that's where my brain goes to when I see Nora Dunn. And so uh, to that end, I mean, she she carries, she she plays fine, she works, she looks the part, she she works well in it. I just, I guess, I always think of her more in a comedic bent, and so yeah, I think if if anything, they're they they could have found either a, a different person to do it or or just brought this made the character stronger altogether can we do a quick imdb game on nora dunn because i think this is uh the this you don't happen to be looking at her page right now do you no i am not i'm curious what you would say are nora dunn's top four on imdb can you tell me is tv up there or animated stuff no animated stuff and it is all feature films <sighs> wow See, I would have, I would have assumed Saturday Night Live would have been on there. I don't think I can do it because honestly, I can't think of uh, any movies that she's been in. <laughs> yeah, I know she's been in a bunch of them, but she's one of those people that is like, like I feel like when she's in movies, she's always doing like bit parts and stuff. You know, like I just don't think of her in in any leading or even like primary like in this film she's definitely more of a supporting character i don't think of her in many supporting characters and and i am curious if when i tell you each of these movies you'll be able to picture the role she played because some of them i can't and i've seen all of these movies uh she played shannon in pineapple express in 2008 can you picture her no how about colleen douglas in drop dead gorgeous oh oh okay yes yes Yes. Yep. Okay. I, that's one I can actually picture her in. How about Cindy Pinzicki in Southland Tales? I never saw it, so I can't speak to that one. Okay. How about Adriana Cruz in Three Kings? 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I should have remembered that one. Totally should have remembered that one. That's that is weirdly the film that I I always picture her in because she's the the like the bulldog reporter in that yes. one. Uh yeah, totally that's okay. Yeah. But isn't that interesting that she's also the first thing I think of for her is uh, every time is Saturday Night Live. She is uh, anchored in my uh, memory as SNL and feature films. She's got 129 credits across TV and feature films and um, has worked an awful lot, uh, you know, much more TV, I think, than than features. But she's been in a lot of stuff. Not that she is uh, an incapable performer. She's I just feel like she's miscast in in this. I just wish something stronger in this sure sure i feel like they were going for maybe what's her name uh, in uh, fargo that kind of dogged awkward detective would have been a better um, cast for me yeah of course um you know the the movie hadn't come out yet <laughs> yeah, so yeah i, don't I know think but just when saying, you think of, let's, when you let's look bring at, our own marge no, gunderson into this no one. no of yeah. course not but i i just feel like in this movie that sort of uh, heightened comedic kind of identity would have been better. And they achieved that in Fargo for me. And they did where they didn't hear. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. If you could go back in time and recast this movie with any actor from a movie that has come out 20 years later, what would it be? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, anyway, Francis McDormand, yes, would be yeah. great in the role. Um, so, I mean, we should talk a little bit about Stacey Title. Stacey Title, um, this was, uh, her directorial debut. Um, she had, um, uh, she hadn't done a whole lot. I mean, she had, um, I think she actually did a short film a few years before this. And then she did this. I think her dad was, uh, in advertising, like, um, a producer and, from that, she knew a lot, like she ended up having been in circles with a lot of the different big, like big time directors who also were doing ads like Michael Bay and Ridley Scott and stuff. And so she ended up meeting a lot of those people through her, uh, through her dad. And um, she ended up meeting Jonathan Penner and marrying him who plays Mark in this film. She's very much kind of in that the Hollywood circles for all this. So even as a first time director, she ends up getting a lot of great people to uh, kind of be involved in the project um, because of those circles that she had been in. She didn't end up getting to direct a lot of uh, films. She she did this, uh, Let the Devil Wear Black, uh, kind of going into a lot of the horror stuff, um, Snoop Dogg's Hood of Horror. Um, the Bye Bye Man was the last thing that she did in 2017. But really, the her story is that she ended up in 2017 getting diagnosed with ALS. She kept trying to work. There are some videos, uh, you know, of her and her husband who stood by her through the whole thing, and it just um, it, it she progressed very quickly with the disease, and it ended up taking her life in 2021. Yeah, it was just it was uh, a very kind of just a sad thing to to hear about when she when she ended up passing away from it, but um, very tragic, just sad that she was never able to quite get much farther with, uh, with her career. You know, she, she and Jonathan Penner were a really sort of interesting couple and married for a long time and from 91 until her death. And, you know, in an industry where, you know, marriages are a little bit, you know, more likely, I think to, to split that's that's one to be celebrated especially at this level of filmmaking kind of that independent spirit hard work filmmaking 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of um, interesting articles online about, like, just everything that she had gone through and everything and how quickly uh, everything went. I mean, 2017 to 2021, it was it, it, the progression of the the disease uh, went real quick, and it, it took her pretty quickly, which is uh, very sad. But, I mean, she was trying to finish. I think there was another project she was actively, like, trying to finish and get done, um, but it just – she never could quite – the disease just kept kind of cutting into all of that and never was able to take off. So very sad, very, very sad, but it was great to see just like learning how strong the relationship was between her and Jonathan and how, how uh, close they were and everything. Yeah. And how supportive he was right through the end. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess her, the, the short film that she did in 1993 down on the waterfront, she actually was nominated for an Oscar with it. So I suppose that likely may have been the thing that um you know also helped her uh, kind of get the cast that she did and the money they needed to get this thing made yeah uh what do you think of um of the script dan rosen i don't know if i know much else that rosen has done looking on imdb dead man's curve a few years later the extra he wrote some additional material for that no five and freeloaders in 2012 uh he did um five episodes as a consulting producer on the tv series the first family um, worked five episodes right now on Cinco de Mayo is not a thing TV series. I'm not, oh, I'm just not that familiar. He has directed a couple of those projects. Not somebody that I'm that familiar with. I feel like also is very much of the indie circle that Stacy was in and probably never quite branched out. You know, I think the movie feels to me, um, uh, scripted by a playwright. You know, I, I felt like this would be a very natural thing to watch on stage, a la Arsenic and Old Lace. Um, you know, that sort of spirit, stage spirit. It would have been easy to, to set, easy to block. Like it just feels like it, it, it would be well preserved live. And, um, so I'm always, when I watch this, I'm always struck by how much I, I feel like I'd like to see it in live theater. Well, to that end, isn't it interesting that it hasn't been translated to the stage because you're right it does feel like something that uh could make that transition and would be something that people would enjoy kind of watching on stage it definitely it definitely feels like it could um make that move especially today like it feels like you could almost translate this to the stage and update it uh, honestly it wouldn't even really need much updating it already feels like it's something that um could very much fit in today's um era yeah but i i know they they have there's there's nothing on gun violence and nothing on and and i i guess you know around the corner we have uh in some of the conversations there's abortion right to life stuff but it largely doesn't deal with some of those issues uh that could be updated and possibly have some satirical fun poking and you know me too black lives matter like they're just there are some issues that could be updated um but i think would be fun portrayed live let's do it let's go ahead and let's go ahead and do that let's 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 reach out to the 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 team and see (laughs) see what it's going to take to get this translated over so in the chat room brian has uh which chat room is this (laughs) uh, so if you're a member you can join us you can join us for the live chat uh, as you're watching this in our discord chat room the tnr live stream if you are a member at the two really level or better uh brian has has bolded a comment that i think is is worth it 
uh, talking about as we get close to the end here. He says, you guys haven't talked much about the movie's discussions of America, nationalism, and the nation's ideals. That's a lot of the script. Um, and I think as we're talking about the issues that we would put into a stage version of this thing, uh, maybe it's worth at least acknowledging that there are there is that th- a lot of this makes up the the threads of the ideological worldview that we've been talking about for the last hour. Do you have a, a specific opinion on how the film handles these things? I don't know if I have any specific thoughts on it. What were you you wanted to call it out? What are you thinking? I do. I do have specific thoughts. I'm so glad you asked. Uh, and I'm not interested in it uh, because I think that gets into political debate, which I don't think is specifically the intention of the film. The, the intention of the film for me as I watch it is look at how all of these worldviews collide and how ill-equipped any of them are at having conversations about anything hard. And it doesn't have to be limited to America, patriotism, nationalism, nation, national ideals. They're all bad at talking about these things. And to, to my eye, that's the stuff I want to talk about. As soon as I start talking about the uh, um, the script's position on American nationalism and the nation's ideals, I'm in a position about politics, and I don't care to have that conversation, certainly not about a movie, uh, about this movie. So uh, that that's where I am. I feel like it's more interesting watching about, watching this movie in particular, uh, w- talking about how they talk about those things and not the script's intentions behind those things specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting um, angle because I, I I think that the film is less about the issues and more about, I mean, I think there's definitely a position to be taken with it. And if if anything, I feel like the director and the team likely are of the mindset of the the liberal grad students. But I, I don't think that's what the story is about. I think it is about uh, what happens when um, when you shift into not having open conversations and, and things like that. And it's more about the dangers of that one-sided mindlessness that you can fall into so easily that you you stop actually having anything to do with that person as a person who is made up of a lot of you know complex thoughts and and different things and you just focus on that one element now they're evil and you're going to kill them and i think that's more what it's about than the issues themselves yeah and when you look at the end position ron perlman's character ends up as we i think just will settle on at least i'll settle on the fact i think they're all dead and that he has killed them and that possibly the redemption is that the ideology of the liberals they've come around to hey we're not going to kill this guy we've learned something and they end up dying anyway at the hand of a guy who hasn't learned anything he doesn't have the benefit of having gone through the conversations that we've had with the liberal id ego superego and their struggles with these conversations and so collectively as they've absorbed the the will of the good and bad the spectrum within their own table um maybe they have as ron's perlman's conversation at the end maybe they have anchored in the middle that it doesn't matter that Polly is still super liberal and doesn't matter that luke is still having the the hot shakes because he's still so angry um but that as a group they have come to center uh, and, and maybe that's the thing that we need to, we need to walk away from. That's certainly the thing I think I walk away from with this movie. Well, I mean, yeah, they, it, by the time we get to the end, they, they're able to 
talk Luke off a cliff, essentially, um, from just turning into the pure evil, and they do actually come together. And so, yeah, maybe it is that idea of you're able to kind of move there. Um, it's it's an interesting. Uh, it's definitely an interesting film. I mean, it's not a perfect film. Um, I, I do think it has issues. I do think it it gets a little cloudy on some of the the messaging that it's trying to do. But on the whole, uh, this is what I, I find interesting about this type of uh, dark comedy that really is trying to satirize this type of society is that it um, it it gives you uh, you know these really interesting perspectives and kind of shows you these dark, dangerous paths and where they can lead. And and I think in context of the way that the story does it, I I found it to be a very interesting engrossing watch. I'm glad we threw it in the series. You know, I, I sort of subversively wanted to talk about it uh, for a number of years on the show. So I'm glad we finally were able to, to throw <laughs> it into this particular series. And um, it is, uh, I think it's an interesting film and I think it's, I think it's worth watching. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we will be right back everybody, but first our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ian Post, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the numbers for all the stats and awards and numbers and all the numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at True Story FM, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how to do at award season. It was an interesting film to kind of uh, hit the awards market. I mean, it was uh, a film that uh, played at Sundance. It didn't necessarily um, like make a huge splash at Sundance, but certainly people recognized it. And so it ended up getting out in a few other festivals. It played at the Cognac Festival du Film Policier uh, in Cognac, France. Um, this is the Cognac Crime Film Festival, and it ended up winning the Grand Prix. Uh, this festival ran from 82 to 07. I guess they have since stopped it. The other festival that it ended up um, uh, getting recognized in the awards bit was at Mistfest, uh, which is the International Crime and Mystery Festival in Cattolica, Italy. This It was nominated for Best Film. It may have won. It may not have. Um, IMDb under the <laughs> list the for mystery? it's <laughs> uh, apparently part of, the, part of the mystery exactly at Mistfest it lists all the films nominated for best film but none of them are marked as the winner so I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea which film ended up winning or if it's just one of the things that they just recognize a whole bunch of films I have no idea but anyway it does have those two um, bits of recognition under its belt all right so now we have to talk about the numbers did you were you able to find any numbers for this film at all it seems like one that would give you struggle it uh did it did uh titles film was a very independent film i did actually find an article that came out around its premiere at sundance saying that she had a quote embarrassingly limited budget and an 18-day schedule um, having shot a film 
uh, on an 18 day schedule. I know exactly how tight that is and how challenging it is with a limited budget. It's doable. Um, and the, obviously they did it, but it is very tight. Unfortunately, that is all I have to go with for the budget for this. Um, after Sundance and TIFF, the film did have a limited opening on six screens, April 5th, 1996, opposite Primal Fear, A Thin Line Between Love and Hate, and Faithful. For a small indie film, it did okay for itself, earning $460,000 domestically and $589,000 internationally for a total gross of $1.7 million in today's dollars. But that's all I have. Uh, this did help get a uh, title on the map, just like her Oscar nomination a few years before. Unfortunately, as we've already said, she sadly didn't get to direct many other films afterward before losing her battle with ALS. Sad story. Sad, sad story. Uh, all right. Well, I'm glad, again, glad we talked about it and uh, excited to see what comes next. Absolutely. Um, it's an interesting film. Um, dark comedies are tricky. Uh, they can really work. They can also really not work. Uh, Cameron Diaz was in another one called Very Bad uh, very bad people, very bad things. What was that one called? And oh, um, I, wow. I hated it. So I, I think that just goes to show um, the the challenge that you have um, in uh, doing these sorts of projects is they sometimes can work better for some people and and not as well for others. So I I, I agree, and I I worry a little bit with my history with this film that maybe I appreciate it for what it was trying to do and not what it actually did. Uh, but I'm willing to I'm willing to carry that. Yeah, and here's the thing. I mean, you know, we saw this at the time. You know, shortly after it came out in a space where there was very little internet, there certainly wasn't the internet kind of uh, gossip and everything that was already going on, nor all the conversations that people are already ha always having now, as far as, I mean, anything that anybody does. So it was at a different time. And I feel like when it came out, I think it struck us as something that, that worked a lot better. And, you know, I mean, yes, it may not work as well for people nowadays, but I think at the time when we saw it right after it came out, it, it felt very fresh and interesting. And, um, you know, if anything, that's something that we can still hang on to the fact that, um, it had that connection with us at the time. Yeah. All right. What, it, what does come next? Well, we are going to be closing out this series. Uh, this is the last, uh, film of our nineties comedy series, and it is going to be Tamara Davis's 1995 comedy, Billy Madison. We'll be right back right now. Here's the trailer for that. Suntan lotion is good for me. He was born into privilege. Oh, really, fool? Really? And stood to inherit a fortune. But for 27-year-old Billy Madison, there's just one problem. How could I hand over my company to someone who couldn't even get through school? That's nice. Billy is not an idiot. Oh, oh. Give me one more chance. I'll prove I can take over. First grade through 12th grade, all over again. And then I get to take over Madison Hotels. You're on. I want you all to meet Billy. You want some more of that? I didn't think so. Don't you think it's a little pathetic that just because of who your father is, you get to come to school all over again? Yes, I do. I already started or something. <laughs> Good morning, class. So let's all open up our reading its fun books to page 69. 69. <laughs> Where's Billy? He's in school, man. So what's it like 
I'm back in school. I don't know. I kind of feel like an idiot sometimes. Although I am an idiot, so it kind of works out. Universal Pictures presents Norman Invasion of England. 1066. That is correct. Adam Sandler. I am the smartest man alive! Spanish Armada. 1466, 67. Billy Madison. 1469, 1514, 1981. God, give me the answer! All right, Andy. It's Letterboxd time. Letterboxd. What are you going to do with this? There, uh, We've already got uh, a shot called in the chat room. Are you going to be there? Are you going to... Or are you gonna you gonna give it a five star? It's not a five star film. It's a film I definitely have um, some issues with, but I do find it to be a very interesting film. I think that what Title and Rosen put together here with these actors and the conversations that they have, I I really enjoy the way that it builds, and I really think that having the final conversation with Norman, the way that it plays out, to be extremely. Um, uh, just exciting. I, I think that it, it made for a really uh, exciting film. So I'm going to give it um, three and a half and a heart, I think is where I'm going to end up landing with this. I think it's an, it's, I mean, it's a short film. It's, you know, an easy one to watch and I have a good time with it. Oh, wow. Three and a half and a heart. I, I was uh, torn. It, I was like, is it yeah. four stars is three and a half. I, I'm like in that zone though, more so than <laughs> like the three to three and a half. I'm more in the three and a half to four zone. So I I have a um, a, a parallel film uh, just in terms of how I feel when I'm watching it. It's not a comedy. It's not trying to do the same thing. It's science fiction, but it do, it's another one that does feel like it could be a weird kind of stage play, uh, very complicated. But it's 2013's Coherence by from uh, James Ward Burkett. I loved that movie. I loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, and I, I had given that one five stars and a heart. And I just, I know it also has some challenges, but it was a film that I adored. And this, I, I feel like the texture of these two films are reminiscent of one another, but I don't feel as strongly walking out of, of, of you know, The Last Supper as I do with Coherence. That's where it, it starts to fall apart. Even two days after I watched it, I'm already thinking, I I love this film for what it was to me, and it. I'm noticing the cracks more. It's really between three and four stars. I think I'm going to go with three stars, but a big beating heart. I'm I'm absolutely going to watch it again. I feel like it'd be interesting to introduce to my, you know, my college student child that I, I think is is thinking about a lot of these things and to see how she reacts to some of the uh, armchair kind of exper- thought experiments that are are brought to bear in this movie. Um, so, yeah, I think three stars and a big heart. Coherence is an interesting one to compare it to because, uh, I, I mean, I, I guess when I say interesting, I mean, I'm a little confused by the comparison other than like the indie project. But I feel like this, the like it's I mean, that's just kind of like a real thought provoking sci fi story as opposed to a social satire. It's because it's so so much of it is people around a table. <laughs> a big part of it where people are around a table and uh so maybe that's where my comparison ends i don't know uh i just for some reason i immediately thought i finished this and i was like i need to go watch coherence again i want that feeling (laughs) well that is a good film i definitely agree all right everybody what did you think about the last supper we would love to know hop into the show talk channel over in our discord community we're going to be talking about the movie this week when the movie ends 
our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxed always doeth. So what's your star rating? I ended up going four and a half. Four and a half. That's high. You should go first. All right. This is by Ted Theo Logan, who um, I guess technically gave it four stars. But uh, when I read this, you'll understand. Extra half star for Iowa. There you go. <laughs> Ted must... Uh, it must be an island. That was it? <laughs> that was the whole thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I've got a three and a half star from Todd, uh, who actually tells us prescriptively who this movie was written for. Here we go. That's what's wrong with you liberals, quote of Zachary Cody from the movie. Politics, yelling, smarter than I expected it to be. A dark comedy about a group of grad students killing conservatives. The cast is really good. The script is kind of funny. And I really enjoyed the ending. It's for liberals and people that hate liberals. (laughs) (laughs) That strikes me as way funny today. Uh, So (laughs) (laughs) that's it. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Uh, And Letterboxd. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>